This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. This is Fresh Air. I'm Tanya Mosley. Throughout history, from Vietnam to the latest conflict in Israel and Gaza, visual images of conflict can offer unparalleled perspectives of the grim brutalities of war. A gripping new documentary takes us to the first days of the war in Ukraine, inside the city of Mariupol, where a team of Ukrainian journalists with the Associated Press captured some of the most harrowing and defining images of the first days of war, from the bombing of a maternity hospital to mass graves and dying children. The team has produced a new film based on those images called 20 Days in Mariupol. February 24th, 2022. The city looks normal. Someone once told me, wars don't start with explosions. They start with silence. When we realized that the invasion was imminent, our team decided to go to Mariupol. We were sure it would be one of the main targets. But we could never imagine the scale and that the whole country would be under attack. One of the journalists who captured those images is Ukrainian video journalist and filmmaker Mstislav Chernov. He's covered many conflicts over his career, including the 2014 Ukrainian Revolution, the war in the Donbas region of Ukraine, the downing of Malaysia Airlines Flight 17, the Syrian Civil War, and the 2022 Russian invasion of Ukraine. Mstislav Chernov and his team have also won several awards for their coverage of Mariupol, including a 2023 Pulitzer Prize for Public Service. 20 Days in Mariupol premieres on PBS Frontline on Tuesday, November 21st. And Mstislav Chernov, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you. As we've heard, you and your team were aware in those first days leading up to the invasion in 2022 that something was going to happen in Mariupol. How did you know that region would probably feel the greatest impact in those first days? You know, for most of Ukrainians and um, for many journalists who've been covering uh, Ukraine since 2014, this war, this Russian invasion has started in 2014. And for me, as a conflict journalist, my work have started from there. And for many Ukrainian journalists too, we are just, we just became conflict journalists, cameramen, uh, photographers, writers, we, we we all became war journalists and that was our new reality. And for all these years, uh, I've been covering also other conflicts for Associated Press, but I was always coming back to Ukraine and to the front lines and kept trying to bring attention to ongoing conflict. And we knew that Mariupol is significant, uh, symbolic, and tactically important for Russia because it's just on the way to to Crimea. Yeah, and uh, we didn't know what's going to be the scale. Uh, 
of the invasion. But in any case, Mariupol would be the big target for them. That's why we have decided to go there. You know, Russia claimed in those early days that they were not targeting civilians. You were there, and your images defy that narrative, which really shows these very graphic images of mostly women and children who are suffering and dying. And we later learned that more than 25,000 civilians were killed. 95% of the city was destroyed. Can you describe what that felt like in reality? It's, it's very personal. It's very, very personal for, for all of us. Uh, I grew up in Kharkiv, and uh, Kharkiv is a similar city to culturally and visually even similar to, to Mariupol. So being being there and seeing city indiscriminately destroyed and, and women and children and men, everyone being killed and their homes being destroyed was just psychologically devastating. And it was definitely the most uh, dangerous experience I've had throughout these years of um, different wars. Um, but it was it was crucial at that point that we we focus on the human toll on the on on the effect that that this attack this invasion is is having on the civilians exactly because Russia kept claiming that they are not targeting civilians that they are targeting only military objects which was clearly not the case and we did expect that because just knowing how Russia performed uh, trying to take uh, Grozny um, in the past and then Aleppo I've been in Aleppo I I know how it was and um, so we did expect that they will be shooting in the city at the city but honestly we did not expect it's going to be so brutal no one did can you talk briefly about the decision to focus on those 20 days. Um, it, I, it seems like a very deliberate choice. There was no context before or after. We yeah. were literally dropped in Mariupol over that span of time. Yeah, that was um, that was a conscious choice of, of to focus on 20 days on this short span of time uh, and to narrow the vision to to everything that happened within those days. Because it lasted much longer than that. It siege. lasted much longer, of course. But I thought that to to show how it really was, to 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 bring the audience to as close as possible to experience which people of Mariupol lived through, we need to we need to focus on these twenty days and. To, to show how it is to be trapped in, in the city, which is sliding down to chaos. And uh, how is it to be scared of whether you wake up alive next day or not? Can you paint a picture for us of, of the chaos that you were experiencing there? A lot of that chaos is in a film, but there are still a lot of moments which are just impossible to capture because uh, 
visually nothing happens, but when bombs, when you just lie down on the floor of the hospital at night and bombs are falling around the hospital and when all the patients that are in these corridors, because people wouldn't sleep in wards, they would just sleep on the floor of the corridors of the hospital, uh, all people in pain because there were just very, very little painkillers left and they would suffer and they would mourn and they would whisper to each other and they would call for nurses but then there was just one nurse which couldn't even sleep and she couldn't ease their these people's pain and so you constantly hear and feel and smell the pain and the hunger that comes with uh, um, with the siege. Um, people gathering water, people gathering snow outside and running uh, in their shelters just to melt the snow into the water. People scrambling for, for food uh, in, in looted shops. Uh, but at the same time, there would be someone with a guitar and... He would just, he or she would just sit and play and sing and, and suddenly everything is transformed and people gather and they're again full of hope and full of life. So there is this always an emotional roller coaster of, of hope and desperation of chaos and, and silence and it goes up and down and it just never stops and you want it to stop and you, you desperately want it to stop, but it just doesn't. In the film, there are these moments where you're filming and people are yelling at you to stop filming or they're saying, why are you filming? And you say over and over again, I'm documenting history. This is history. It's journalism because your images also then went out into the world. The AP then disseminated them to news organizations, and then they aired those videos and images. All of the international journalists had fled by this time. But in the moment, you seemed to hold on to this idea that what you were documenting was something that could be used later in time to understand this moment that we we're in. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, by the time when the city was completely surrounded, I just understood that we need we need to record everything. Every every frame, every second will be invaluable later for the war crimes investigations, for for history of Ukraine and also journalistically important right in the moment. So everything had to be recorded and I did my best to do that. Although sometimes I had just to hide and stop recording because the moments were too hard or people I was filming needed support. But most of the people we met in Mariupol and further the siege progressed, more tragedies unfolded, more people were just coming to us and saying, please keep filming, please keep sending these images because the world has to know, world has to stop what is happening here. So I did. And um, there were few who said, don't film me and you don't see them in a film. There were those who 
wanted to express aggression or who wanted to express different opinions from the majority of other people and they did and it's also in a film so those people it was very important for us when we edited and we uh, we we covered uh, it as news and when we edited it as a film it was very important uh, editorially to show variety of reactions of of people who are trapped in this in the city in the siege and to show the panic and confusion and i think that's the big this confusion is also a part of another big theme that you see in the film uh, a theme of misinformation and misinterpretation and what it does to people uh, when the city was when the city was deprived of of any communication it led to people to to panic it destroys the society apparently the absence of information is much more devastating for our society than than absence of food and water because you had no way of knowing how your images were being used what the world knew about what you were actually seeing were you even aware in those moments that you and your team were the only ones sending these images because you knew that like you weren't seeing other journalists but that that uh that isolation that you're talking about did you feel it too we did uh, but we had short moments of of connection when we actually were able sometimes to to send images and it was sometimes a day or two days after they were filmed and therefore only at those in those moments when i could speak to editors i i could see that the images that i've sent maybe four and five days ago were making impact and i was seeing that nothing nothing else is being published from from mariupol and of course um, editors also were telling us that apparently there is no one else reporting now we know that uh, a Lithuanian uh, a great Lithuanian filmmaker was as well in in Mariupol at the same time with us filming uh, he wasn't sending anything and he tried to escape uh, his name is uh, Mantas Kudaravichus and he was trying to escape the same way we did but um, slightly later through Russian checkpoints and unfortunately he was captured and executed one of the hardest parts to watch in this documentary is um is of this 4-year-old girl being treated on a gurney in a hospital and as doctors are working on her feverishly trying to keep her alive one of the doctors is saying to you over and over keep filming don't stop show putin the eyes of this child this is one of the first images the associated press actually released to broadcasters which then um was shown around the world let's listen to some of the reporting that happened along with your images US officials warned that Russian forces are turning to their old and brutal tactics of laying siege to cities while targeting civilians and infrastructure from afar he's punishing artillery and airstrikes heavy losses as indiscriminate shelling rained down on apartment buildings the university in flames show this to putin a doctor said to an ap reporter the doctor wanted vladimir putin to see quote the eyes of this child and crying doctors anyone wanting to leave mariupol probably has to hit the road by tomorrow 
after which the last route out is expected to close. That was a clip from the new PBS Frontline documentary, 20 Days in Mariupol. Mstislav, this is this is what you're talking about, these images that you were able to capture, uh, followed by the different ways that the narrative um, was told around those images. That four-year-old girl died right there in front of, of you. Yeah. And not only that girl. After all of the medics leave, your camera lingers. It, it is a very haunting image. Everyone has left the room, and there is just the girl on the gurney, and it's you. Can you take me to that day? <laughs> this is a very hard question. Ah, uh, okay. So um, I think doctors have fought for the life of Evangelina for a very long time, much longer that actually they needed to, but they just couldn't believe that they cannot save, they cannot save her. And when when they've accepted that fact. And when they told the mother, everyone left the room because no one could, everyone was so shocked because and no one could, could look. Everyone felt so devastated. Uh, and uh, yeah, I remained for a few seconds in the room to make one, one final shot to to remember and uh, there are just few names in a film that appear and these are these are the names of, of children who died and I just want these names to be remembered how do you prepare yourself to see such things what is what is inside of you that keeps you focused and strong to keep rolling you 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 don't you can't prepare yourself for that. I don't think any normal human being can prepare yourself for that. But also, your feelings—you know, your feelings—you you, you know that at the moment. And your feelings are at that moment are absolutely irrelevant because that's parents who who are hit the hardest. I can only I can only imagine how how that feels and I wish that no one ever feels that. I think it's the biggest tragedy in the world to a loss of a, a child's life. And uh, no one should experience that ever. Our guest today is Ukrainian video journalist and filmmaker Mstislav Chernov talking with us about his new film 20 Days in Mariupol. We'll be right back. I'm Tanya Mosley, and this is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mattress Firm. How do you sleep at night? No matter what might be keeping you up, Mattress Firm can help anyone sleep. Mattress Firm will find you the right mattress from a wide selection of top brands at every budget. Plus, if you see a lower price somewhere else, they'll match it up to 120 nights with their low price guarantee. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day sale and sleep at night. Restrictions apply. See mattressfirm.com or store for details. 
This message comes from NPR sponsor Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and gives personalized recommendations based on the homes that you like so you can find the home that's just right for you. You can favorite homes, share listings with others, and even schedule tours with a local Redfin agent all in the app. When you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process, and they know how to help you win the right home at the right price. So download the Redfin app to get started today. This message comes from NPR sponsor ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. Enter ServiceNow. It puts AI to work for people across your business, providing intelligent tools to help remove frustration and supercharge productivity. And all of that is built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Learn more at servicenow.com slash AI for people. I'm Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Baldonado, here with a secret from our archives. Sometimes during interviews, Terry almost sings. Now, as we'll hear, one of the things you do on this record is your famous, I can't, I can't even imitate this, but you're oh, 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 oh. To hear Terry with Ronnie Spector, you'll have to be a Fresh Air Plus supporter. Join for yourself at plus.npr.org. Today, my guest is Associated Press video journalist and filmmaker Mstislav Chernov. He's covered many conflicts around the world, including the Ukrainian Revolution of 2014, the war in the Donbas region of Ukraine, the downing of Malaysia Flight 17, the Syrian Civil War, and the 2022 Russian invasion of Ukraine. Chernov and his team have won several awards for their coverage at the start of the Ukrainian-Russian War, including a 2023 Pulitzer Prize for Public Service. A documentary of his work, 20 Days in Mariupol, premieres on PBS Frontline on Tuesday, November 21st. You know, I was thinking, Mr. Slav, uh, as well, when I was watching this very powerful documentary that... um, You know, we have these journalistic principles that are supposed to be this line between the subjects that we are covering and um, ourselves. And the journalistic integrity in many ways is, is murky in these instances because you're also a human being. What is your philosophy when you have a personal and emotional stake in the story? How do you make the calculation of when to stop filming and to to actually help? That is a decision which you um, which you have to take like in the very very beginning of your conflict journalism career because inevitably you're facing situations when when people need help and I think that it's quite a, a simple and clear rule if person needs help and if there is no one competent nearby to help them you drop your camera and you just help. If there is a competent person to to assist a person in need, then you keep filming and you keep filming everything because you never know what's going to be important. And especially when people are suffering in the places where human rights could be violated, when the war crimes are possible, war crimes are happening, you have to film everything just everything, then you decide what to publish. There is also a duty, a public duty to, to make sure that that these tragedies are seen by the world. 
Um, so yeah, it's again, it's it's a hard it's a hard balance. It's a hard balance, but uh, it's it's important. Was there ever a moment when you were in Mariupol where you did have to put down your camera and stop and help? Yeah, many many moments like that. When we lived in the hospital for a while, so sometimes we would just carry food for doctors still had some food left and they were sharing it with patients of course and we were just like carrying food sometimes we needed to help carry gurneys because there were not enough personnel and elevators didn't work obviously so we just carried gurneys with uh, with injured people we were part we were part of this uh, community and uh we are part of this community and i think it's a very simple decision it, it does seem uh, when you when you step back when you think that oh well journalists cannot be involved and uh take sides but in this specific case we and i do agree with that i do agree with the thought that journalists should never become activists and because that's that's a dangerous path when they are becoming weapons of someone else's interests but at the same time uh it doesn't mean we need to stop to be humans ukrainians as you mentioned that identity is so strong the community the sense of self and from the very start there was a an uh, a message a pouring out from the ukrainian people of see us see our humanity there's this part in this film where you're talking to a police officer named vladimir about what he wants the international community to know about the war and he first gives his message in ukrainian and then he gives it in english let's listen the name of the police officer speaking to us is vladimir he wants to make a statement Так, пошли. Сьогодні російські загарбники скоїли тяжкий злочин. Вони нанесли бомбовий удар по центру міста Маріуполя. Вони зруйнували бомбами роддом, пологовий будинок. And then he asks once more. Russian troops commit war crimes. Our family, our women, our children need help. Our people need help from international society. Please help Mariupol. That was a police officer named Vladimir featured in the new documentary about the early days of the war in Ukraine called 20 Days in Mariupol. Mstislav, um, there was an outpour of support early on. But now here in the States, there is this battle within Congress over allocating additional funding to help fund this war. We know that current President Biden is an ally, but some presidential candidates who are running, they're, they're actually running on this campaign of, of saying that if they're elected, they will cut funding off to your country. You're traveling the country and still doing work on the, on the day-to-day level, on the ground level, in practical ways. Does it still feel like the support from the world is there. Yeah, it definitely feels that support that support is there. And I think even with uh, uh what is happening right now in Israel and Gaza there is an understanding 
there is bigger understanding in the world that these conflicts are connected and that it can they concern everyone that every country somehow will be in future part part of that but i think i think there is uh, an understanding there is a mutual understanding between all ukrainians um, that uh, <laughs> however big or small the support is from the world uh, they will not stop fighting and that's i think that some of the politicians uh, uh, in many countries don't understand that this misconception is widely supported by russian propaganda as well uh, the thought that if you stop giving weapons to ukraine somehow the war stops and everything will resolve itself but the truth is that ukrainians are fighting and that's what they feel they are fighting for their existence they know what happens to cities when they got occupied by russians and they know that if they retreat uh, what will happen to them they will be killed tortured so it's fight for the survival and it doesn't matter how many weapons will be sent to Ukraine. It doesn't matter because Ukrainians will keep fighting. That's what they are prepared for. Less weapons will just mean there will be more victims among the civilian population and uh, on the front line among the soldiers. That's what that's what they tell me when when I ask them what they feel about the support at my stop they say we will not stop fighting. Let's take a short break. If you're just joining us, my guest is award-winning video journalist and filmmaker Mstislav Chernov. Chernov and his team were the only international journalists to spend the first 20 days of the war in Ukraine in the city of Mariupol. We'll continue our conversation after a short break. This is Fresh Air. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way, Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research. On, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Taylor Swift has dropped a new album. She is the biggest pop star in the world and everything she does makes news. I gasped. I was like, oh my God, I've been there and you can identify with it. For a breakdown of Taylor Swift and her new album, The Tortured Poets Department, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. When and how did you and your team get out of Mariupol? Um, it was a day 20. And uh, the Green Corridor was just negotiated and open, although it was not clear whether it's going to hold or not, whether it's official or not, whether people who are living through 
this green corridor will be shot at or not. But thousands of cars will live in the city and this was we we knew that this was our chance because there was still very much chaos on on the Russian checkpoints. We knew that security protocols and all the lists of people who they're looking for were not established yet. They still haven't been checking the phones or uh, you know, the identities of people who were leaving the city and we took our chance. So Vladimir used his personal car and risked safety of his own family to to take us out of the city with with other with thousands of other people and we joined this convoys uh, and we were so lucky to get through 15 Russian checkpoints within the occupied territory. So, <laughs> if you think about it now, it feels like a very hopeless, hopeless idea. But because there was such a chaos, we uh, we had uh, we had a good chance, and then we were lucky that we by the night time, basically the time we just too dangerous to cross the front line or just to stay somewhere in the field we we reached um, a red cross convoy we, we caught up with this red cross cars and we just went in this convoy and that saved us too through the hardest through the hardest part of the of the trip and there was a plan if we don't if we don't escape uh, then we would probably need to go to Azovstal and to remain there but because there was still some connection there but yeah it was uh, it was not a very good option you're from Kharkiv which had its own battle from February to May of, of 2022 what is your hometown like now after leaving Mariupol, I went to Bucha, and then I asked editors to send me to Kharkiv because it was under attack, and there was a chance it, it could have been surrounded, and I wanted to go to my hometown to to tell its story, and so I went. And it was such a difficult time because we already started editing 20 days in Mariupol. We already started to going through all the footage and discussions how we will build a narrative, how how we approach these tragedies and we mm, found and I filmed a lot of follow-up stories with families, with doctors. So Mariupol was very much still there in my mind and in my heart and at the same time during the day well actually during the morning every four like 4 a.m uh, a big rocket would hit Kharkiv somewhere and usually that's when you uh, start working and trying to find where it hit if that it hit civilians and so he would work through the whole day and just trying to again survive and there were civilian victims every single day and it was like a deja vu and then I would just come back to um, to my home and then I will start I would start editing and looking at what happened in Mariupol so 
it was very challenging time, very challenging time. One day I uh, received a dress from emergency services where uh, the shelling hit the residential area and I drove there. I just put it in my uh, phone and I drove there and I realized that that was the house where I lived as a student for, for five years. Oh, and there were just oh. like, three three people killed right in front Mm. For that house and in all those memories from from being a child and then being a student came back to me and uh this scene uh, of broken windows and then mutilated bodies uh, were right on the top of it and it was all like a nightmare leaking into reality but the actually nightmare you just can't wake up from that is something that I really want to talk about in my next film. The how the, the how end. this how this invasion takes away our childhood memories, takes away our uh, p- places that live peacefully in our memories, and just turns them into dust and ruins. That is something I will definitely address in my next film. Do you, do you even sit still long enough to to think about your own mortality? Wow, that is a deep question. I am, I have to tell you the truth, I am really afraid of death and of pain. But then again, we are not presented with much choice right now. And since I have chosen this profession, I have chosen to challenge myself and my fears then I will stick to that decision for as long as I can. Wow, Mr. Slav, it just is, it's like then you're facing your fear every day. Aren't we all in some way? Maybe not to this extent. Well, I can speak only for myself. I, I don't know. I guess we everyone makes their own choices. Yeah. And what that's what I can tell you for sure is that sometimes people don't know what they are capable of. I've seen people who thought they're so brave and they're capable of everything, but then when they're presented with with a difficult choice, whether to risk their lives or and do something and uh, just save their lives, run run for their lives, and they would choose to run. And those people who I would never expect it to be brave and to be standing their ground until the very end they they do it and it even surprises them so we there is a moment in 20 days in Mariupol in a film when I say that war is like an x-ray that's what one of the doctors told me in a hospital war is like an x-ray good people become better bad people become worse so the war shows our true nature and again i'm sure there is a better way for that i'm sure there is a better way to understand our own nature but um, that's that's the reality we live in the war zone mr slav chernov thank you so much for this conversation thank you mr slav chernov is a video journalist and filmmaker 
His new documentary, 20 Days in Mariupol, premieres on PBS Frontline on Tuesday, November 21st. The film will also stream on YouTube, Frontline's website, in the PBS app, and on the PBS Documentaries Prime video channel. Coming up, Marine Corrigan reviews a new short story collection. This is Fresh Air. Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. These days, news comes at you fast. But the truth? Getting there takes time. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Embedded is a podcast that takes the time to look beyond the headlines. How how did this happen? How did we get here? With original documentary storytelling. Listen to NPR's Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. Hey. I hear you have a birthday coming up. Yeah, you. If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at LifeKit, we want it to be a special one. Magic can happen and good luck can happen and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday, even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the LifeKit podcast from NPR. Critics and fellow writers have used terms like one of the greatest and perfect to refer to Claire Keegan and her writing. Our book critic Maureen Corrigan says the only flaw she sees with Keegan's work is that there isn't enough of it. Here's her review of So Late in the Day, a newly published collection of three of Keegan's short stories. Claire Keegan's newly published short story collection, So Late in the Day, contains three tales that testify to the screwed-up relations between women and men. To give you a hint about Keegan's views on who's to blame for that situation, be aware that when the title story was published in France earlier this year, it was called Misogynie. In that story, a Dublin office worker named Cahill is feeling the minutes drag by on a Friday afternoon. Something about the situation soon begins to seem off. Cahill's boss comes over and urges him to call it a day. Cahill absentmindedly neglects to save the budget file he's been working on. He refrains from checking his messages on the bus ride home because, as we're told, he found he wasn't ready, then wondered if anyone ever was ready for what was difficult or painful. Cahal eventually returns to his empty house and thinks about his fiancée, who's moved out. On first reading, we think, poor guy, he's numb because he's been dumped on rereading, and Keegan is the kind of writer whose spare, slippery work you want to reread. Maybe we think differently. Keegan's sentences shapeshift the second time round, twisting themselves into a more emotionally complicated story. Listen, for instance, to her brief description of how Cahal's bus ride home ends. At the stop for Jack White's Inn, a young woman came down the aisle and sat in the vacated seat across from him. He sat breathing in her scent until it occurred to him that there must be thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of women, who smelled the same. 
Perhaps Cahal is clumsily trying to console himself. Perhaps, though, the French were on to something in entitling this story Misogyny. It's evident from the arrangement of this collection that Keegan's nuanced, suggestive style is one she's achieved over the years. The three short stories in So Late in the Day appear in reverse chronological order, so that the last story, Antarctica, is the oldest, first published in 1999. It's far from an obvious tale, but there's a definite foreboding woman-in-peril vibe going on throughout Antarctica. In contrast, the central story of this collection, called The Long and Painful Death, which was originally published in 2007, is a pensive masterpiece about male anger towards successful women and the female impulse to placate that anger. Our unnamed heroine, a writer, has been awarded a precious two weeks residency at the isolated Heinrich Boll House on Achill Island, a real place on Ireland's west coast. She arrives at the house exhausted and falls asleep on the couch. Keegan writes that when she woke, she felt the tail end of a dream, a feeling like silk disappearing. The house phone starts ringing, and the writer reluctantly answers it. A man who identifies himself as a professor of German literature says he's standing right outside and that he's gotten permission to tour the house. Our writer, like many women, needs more work on her personal boundaries. She puts off this unwanted visitor until evening, but she's not strong enough to refuse him altogether. After she puts the phone down, we're told that what had begun as a fine day was still a fine day, but had changed. Now that she had fixed a time, the day in some way was obliged to proceed in the direction of the Germans coming. She spends valuable writing time making a cake for her guest, who, when he arrives, turns out to be a man with a healthy face and angry blue eyes. He mentions something about how many people want to come here, many, many applications. I am lucky, I know, murmurs our writer. The professor is that tiresome kind of guest who could neither create conversation nor be content to have none. That is, until he reveals himself to be a raging green-eyed monster of an academic. This story is the only one of the three that has what I'd consider to be a happy ending. But maybe upon rereading, I'll find still another tone lurking in Keegan's magnificently simple, resonant sentences. Maureen Corrigan is a professor of literature at Georgetown University. She reviewed So Late in the Day by Claire Keegan. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, how much influence does Fox News have now? We talk with media reporter Brian Stelter. He's written his second book about Fox called Network of Lies, the epic saga of Fox News, Donald Trump, and the battle for American democracy. It's about Fox in the days and years after January 6th. I hope you can join us. 
To keep up with what's on the show and to get highlights of our interviews, follow us on Instagram at NPR Fresh Air. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallet, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Teresa Madden, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.B. Nesper. Roberta Shorak directs the show. For Terry Gross, I'm Tanya Mosley. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Your business faces specific challenges and unique opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, custom-tailored to your short- and long-term goals. Backed by the expertise, strategy, and resources of a top-10 commercial bank, a dedicated team works with you to support your success and help achieve your goals. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial. This message comes from NPR sponsor, MassMutual. The Financial Educators Council says 39% of Americans don't have someone to go to for financial advice. But you can plan for the short and long term with someone backed by 170 years of financial expertise at MassMutual.com. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL. Because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.